If you have your Bibles and could turn to 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 28, or uh, take a look on the back of your worship guide. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. And if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because everyone, because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you are great and greatly to be praised. And I pray that in this room tonight, your name would be exalted. God, empires will crumble, mountains will fall into the sea, but your word abides forever. God, I pray tonight by your grace and by your mercy that it would be faithfully preached here tonight. And I pray for every person in this room that you would give them ears to hear, not from me, because what good is that for them? They would hear from you, that you would speak plainly and clearly to them from your word. God, so we pray right now, you would talk to your children. Speak, Lord, for we, your children, your servants, are listening. Amen. So the summer after my sophomore year in college, my buddy Jason and I went to work at Glacier National Park in Montana. I've always loved the outdoors. I've always loved hiking. I've always loved climbing. So this was like a dream come true. I had this job lined up. I was line cook number two at the Great Northern Steak and Rip House. Sounds amazing, right? Pays all of $7.15 an hour, but I didn't care. I just really wanted to be out there in these mountains. And we spent the better part of that 2,000-mile drive talking about all of the 700 miles we could hike in this park. And you guys may not know this. You probably don't. But Glacier National Park, it actually backs up to the Blackfeet Indian Reservation. And where I worked at this stake and rib house, it was actually on Indian Reservation property. So a lot of my coworkers, including line cook number one, were Blackfeet Indians. And line cook number one, he introduced himself to me as Little John, which was amazing because this was 2005. So it meant I could come into work. Little John would come in about an hour after. I just hit play, and yeah, would be his entrance music, right? And also because he was six foot five and 350 pounds, so he was not little in any respect. And one day, Little John and I were talking about a hike that I'd just gone on. My buddy Jason and I, we'd, we'd climbed to this waterfall, and I'd almost fallen in and fallen off the waterfall, almost died. It was terrible. And he looks at me, and he says, you know what? I've never been inside the park. And he might as well have sucker punched me. I mean, no joke. It was like the world moved in slow motion at that point. I was like, what? How is this even possible? 
I literally spent every cent that I had to get out here to work this job, making $7.15 an hour, just so I could see these mountains. And you grew up here, and you've never made the two-mile trek into the park. How? This is the most spectacular thing that I've ever seen. And he just looks at me, and he says, I don't know, man. It's just where I grew up. And you see, because it was so familiar to him, because he'd always known it, John looked at the miraculous as though it were the mundane, as though it were ordinary, as if there was nothing special about it. And isn't that sad? And you see, at the beginning of 1 John chapter 3, the apostle John, he really wants to grab your attention. The word translated see in verse 1 in your worship guides in the ESV, it'd probably be better translated behold. Because John doesn't want you just to look at something. He wants you to gaze intently at something. I want you to imagine him almost grabbing your face and turning it until you have to be looking in this direction. There's something that John is desperate for you not to miss, and I don't want you to miss it either. Because what he's about to show you is meant to take your breath away. He wants you to be left asking, how is this even possible? What kind of love is this? And you see, even that word kind is a little misleading here because the word kind originally meant of what country, or in other words, where did this come from? It's the same words that the disciples use in Matthew Matthew chapter 8 when Jesus calms the storm. You guys may remember this story, right? So the disciples, they're out in this boat out at sea. It's crazy. They all think that they're going to die, and Jesus is fast asleep. And they finally wake him up and they say, Lord, don't you even care that we're about to die? And Jesus says one word and the storm dies down and the waves immediately go calm. And if you don't know the story, what you would expect is the disciples to high five and be like, yes, Jesus is on our side. This is amazing. We are unstoppable now. What the Bible says in Mark chapter four, which is a parallel story of this, they say that they were filled with great fear. And they said to one another, what sort of man is this? In other words, Jesus, we don't have a category for you. Because you're unlike anything that we've ever seen or imagined. We don't actually understand you at all. And it's my prayer tonight that God would give you ears to hear from him. And that the same awe that filled those disciples in that boat, the same awe that fills John as he writes this, would grab a hold of you. And not because of the eloquence of the dude up here, I assure you, but because the wonder of this mystery that is found in these verses. So we're going to look at three things tonight, if you like taking notes. So the first is the impossibility of approaching God. The impossibility of approaching God. The second is the wonder of approaching God. The wonder of approaching God. And the third is what that means. So first, the impossibility of approaching God. I know that I'm totally weird, but I like to imagine totally weird things, okay? And I want you to imagine that next week you were at Octane and all of a sudden Moses, yes, Old Testament Moses, he walks in and he sits down at the table with you. And I want you to think about the sort of questions that you'd like to ask him. I mean, I know you probably like to ask him what his opinions are, whether the Warriors are better with Durant or 
What kind of Snapchat filter? I can't even make that joke. It's terrible. <laughs> we'll just pass it. I, I hope that you would eventually get to this question where you say, who is God to you? I mean, what, what was that like? Everything that you went through. And I would imagine his response would be something like this. God, he's the great I am. He is the holy one. He is the one who made us and who needs absolutely nothing because he does whatever he wants, whenever, whenever he wants, and he is totally unapproachable in his holiness. And remember, when anyone in the Old Testament got near to God, it was absolutely terrifying. I mean, God first shows up to Moses, and he's a burning bush. And then later, he sends all of these plagues, and as he's leading Israel into the promised land through the desert, he's a pillar of fire. And they get to Mount Sinai, where you get the great story of the Ten Commandments. But what happens on Mount Sinai? It looks like the mountain is on fire. Lightning is striking it at every turn. The mountain fills up with this crazy cloud of God's glory. And there's earthquakes everywhere. And the Bible says it sounds like there's a trumpet getting louder and louder and louder. And then God's voice comes out of that thunder. And he says, hey, the rest of you, if you get too close to this mountain, you're dead. And so Moses goes up on this mountain, and he meets with God, and he does something totally crazy. He almost starts to get in this argument with God. God says, hey, listen, I know that I promised you the promised land, and I, I'm going to do that, but I'm not going to go with you because I'm afraid if I go with you, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to wipe out everybody. And then Moses says this crazy thing. He says, God, if you're not going to come with us, don't, don't send us. We have to be with you. Because Moses understood something, that being near to God is the absolute best thing in the entire universe. And then Moses gets a little bit more bold after God relents. And he says, show me your glory. And I don't know if you guys know this story. It's Exodus 32 and 33. But what God says to him is, I'm going to tell you my name. I'm going to pass before you. But you can only see my backside because no one can see my face and live. So here's the conundrum that Moses has. He knows that being near God is the best of all possible things. And yet he knows better than most that you can't get too close to God or you will die. One more example. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah the prophet has this vision where he sees God. He wakes up and he finds himself in the Holy of Holies, this part of the temple where the great high priest could only go one time a year and only to make a sacrifice for all the people for their sins. And I want you to imagine this. This is crazy. He sees God on his monstrous throne, and he sees these beings called seraphim flying around. And the word seraphim literally means burning ones. And they are shouting their song so loud that the very walls are shaking. And they are crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now, in Hebrew, if you wanted to emphasize something, like if you wanted to say this is the purest of all pure gold, you would say that this is gold gold. There's never been any gold like this. And there's only one phrase in the whole Bible that is ever repeated three times. Holy, holy, holy. And it's as if Isaiah, it's as if these angels and God wants to get something across to you. And the word holy, you might have heard this, it means set apart, or it means other, or it means 
not like you. It's God's godness. It's God's purity. So this is so emphasized to make this point to us that, that there is not words to describe just how set apart and other and pure God is. You could not begin to understand it even if you tried. Therefore, God's holiness is only a threat to us. His purity burns with such a white hot heat that it necessarily burns up all sin and impurity that it comes in contact with. So when Isaiah hears the angel's song about God's holiness, how does he, the Lord's own prophet, respond to being in the presence of God? Suddenly, the woes that he had pronounced upon other people for the first five chapters of his book, he turns them on himself. And he says, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Why does he say that he's a man of unclean lips? Because this is really important. Isaiah was a prophet, right? So he used his mouth to declare the true things of God to people. And he's saying that even this, even the very best part of me is so impure that it cannot stand the presence of the pure God. The best part of me crumbles in front of him. He's sure of his own destruction, so he pronounces a curse upon himself. Isaiah, he's one of the last men of God of his time. And Moses, the Bible says that he was the humblest person on earth at the time. They knew that being near to God was the greatest of all possible things. And yet even the very best of us can't come anywhere near God because God's holiness makes him utterly and absolutely unapproachable. Second, the wonder of approaching God. So Isaiah 6 is followed by Isaiah 7. Thank you. At least one. In Isaiah 7, Isaiah prophesies something really beautiful. In verse 14, he says, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And there's no way that Isaiah could have really grasped what he was prophesying at the time, right? But I want you to imagine, again, if Moses and Isaiah suddenly showed up in this room on Sunday, heard us talking about the Christmas story, the holy God made flesh, God with us. I mean, can you imagine for a second just what they would do? Imagine Moses' expression as we tell them that the God who was with them up on the mountain, who shook it, who burned as a pillar of fire, that Mary held him in her arms as a helpless baby, that Almighty God was contained in a helpless child. Imagine Isaiah, who saw God up on his throne being worshipped by flaming angels, saying, oh yeah, he was born in a manger, an animal's food trough, to really poor parents. Oh, and he couldn't come inside because there was no room for him and nobody noticed that he was born. What has happened? How can this be and what does it mean? Why would God do this? Because that's the real question. Why would God in Jesus be willing to forfeit all the rights and the privileges that come from being God of the universe to come to this earth as a tiny baby? to live this sort of horrible life, right? To never have anything, to really never be recognized, to have all of your friends betray you, 
to be scorned and mocked and utterly killed. Before you rush to this answer a little too quickly, because I know that you know, I want you to think for a minute. Because yes, of course, Jesus died. He came to save us from our sins. But there's something so much more than that. You see, in John chapter 14, Jesus has just reminded his disciples again that he is about to die. But this time, the disciples are troubled. When Jesus begins to reassure them, he doesn't tell them, hey, listen, I'm going to rise again in three days. Hey, listen, this has all been part of the plan all along. That's not what he says. He says this. He tells them where he's going and why. He says, in my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. In John chapter 20, just after Jesus has come back, there's Mary Magdalene and she's weeping at the tomb, trying to figure out where Jesus is. And Jesus doesn't stop her and say, hey, listen, this is what the cross was actually about. Hey, listen, exactly what I said, it came true. There's no need to cry anymore. He tenderly says her name. He says, Mary. And then he says this, I have to go away to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. My father and your father. How does Jesus go to prepare a place for his disciples? Why did Jesus come to die? Jesus died so that that holy, unapproachable God could become our father. He died so that the God that Isaiah saw, you could call by name as a parent. All his life, Jesus had called God Father, and yet on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he was forsaken so that you and I would know that we would never have to be. He was cast out so that we could be brought in, so that in Christ, you could have God as your Abba Father. And I want you to think about this for a second, okay? Imagine that you had committed a terrible crime. Imagine that you knew that you deserved to die. There was no question about whether or not you were guilty. All the evidence pointed to it. All that's left is for the judge to pound his gavel. And you're in the courtroom. The gavel falls, and it's over for you. But then the strangest of all things happens. That judge walks down, and he says, hey, listen, my son he and I talked before this. He went out back. He was dressed in your clothes, and they killed him. Your punishment has been paid. Your record has been expunged. You are free. And listen, not only that, but my son left his clothes for you to put on. And I already started filing the paperwork. When you leave here, you're coming home with a new name. You're my son. Your brothers and your sisters they're already at home waiting for you, and there's a meal prepared for you. Like, if this actually happened to any of you, can you imagine how hard it would be for you to believe? How shocking, how jarring, how much you would think this has to be a lie because this cannot be reality. 
And yet what the Bible tells us is it is that you are not just forgiven because it's great to be forgiven by God as judge, but it's so much greater to be welcomed into his family with him as your father, with Jesus as your brother, called God's son and daughter. Because now you've been fully adopted by God and everything that he has, and he has everything, is yours. You're a co-heir. The Bible says that God looks at you, if you're in Christ, with the exact same love and affection that he looked on Jesus himself. That makes no sense. You are no longer whatever the world says that you are. You are no longer whatever your failures are. You are no longer whatever negative thing you think about yourself. You are a child of the most high God and you will never be cast out. J.I. Packer put it this way in his book, Knowing God. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very, very well at all because father is the Christian name for God. Are you starting to see? Are you starting to behold? What manner of love is this? Where does this love come from that we should be called the children of God? We really could spend the rest of our lives, right, unpacking the implications of what that means. But you can uh, consider it God's fatherly mercy mercy upon you tonight that we're only going to look at two things, Okay, So two of the implications, what this means. First, just in prayer, I want you to think back to Isaiah in that throne room. Isaiah was stunned by the majesty of God and by the depths of his own sinfulness. He knew that no one could stand in God's presence, and he knew that that included him. Now, imagine if he had heard what the author of Hebrews said in chapter 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence boldly approach the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The throne that if Isaiah got too close to, he would have been killed, we can boldly approach because perfect love himself has come. By his death, Christ tore open the veil that separated the holy of holies from mankind and signified that for once and for all, God the Holy One is totally accessible to us anywhere, at any moment, that you can sit here in this room, even as I'm speaking, and talk to God as Father. This also means that your prayers, no matter what you think, never have bounced off the walls. They never will. He always hears. He always answers. I don't expect any of you to know this, but there's a lot of debate between parenting experts about what the appropriate age is for you to let your child start to cry through the night. So the first couple of months of a child's life, whenever they cry in the middle of the night, it's, it's pretty important to build a bond, to build trust, to try and go and comfort them, right? But there comes a point where if you wait too long, it makes it harder and harder for that kid to ever learn how to fall asleep on their own. And I remember when Sarah, my oldest, uh, was about six months old, Aaron, my wife, and I had just decided, OK, we're going we're gonna to commit to this. We're going to let Sarah cry it out through the night. 
And I remember we're staring at the baby monitor, and Sarah has just lost her mind. Like, she is wailing. And we're basically taking turns, looking at one another, saying, OK, be strong. Be strong. Don't go in there. Don't go in there. We committed to this. But she's got to know. She's got to know that we love her, that we're here for her, that we, that we really are trying to do what's best for her. And we were trying, as best as we knew how, to do what was best for her. And please don't miss this. God has never been in that position. God has never wondered what the best thing to do for you was. He, if you're his child, he has literally, every, he has literally done it every single second of your entire life life. He always knows what's best. And he's always taking great care to give you exactly what you need, exactly when you need it. And listen to this in Luke chapter 11. This is Jesus. He says, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask them? Listen, This doesn't mean that suffering won't come your way, right? It doesn't mean that your relationship, it might not totally fall apart. It doesn't mean that you may not be single for a lot longer than you think that you ought to be single. It doesn't mean that you might not fail your finals and might have to drop out of school. It doesn't mean that you might not make that team or that your friends might not leave you or even that your parents might not get divorced. You may get an egg from God that looks to you and feels to you like a scorpion, but it's an egg because God has promised. It means that whatever God gives you is meant for your absolute most perfect good because he often gives us what we should have asked for instead of what we actually asked for. And because he hears and because he loves, we literally have no reason to ever worry about anything in our future. Because Jesus says to us in our worry, he says, God is your father and he's in control of everything. He feeds the sparrows. He clothes the lilies. If he sent me to be slaughtered on your behalf to bring you into this family, you really think he's not going to take care of you? You really think there's something harder than that for him to do? One more thing on prayer. Galatians 4, 6 says, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And Abba, it's not really a word, okay? It's, it's baby babble. It's what a kid cries out before it actually knows how to speak. And the reason that Paul uses this word is because he wants you to grasp the real level of intimacy and trust that God intends for you to have with him. When my little boy is afraid in the night, when he thinks he's alone, he cries out, Papa, because I'm the one that he most relies on, who knows, he knows that I love him. He knows that I'll do whatever it takes to take care of him. You don't cry Abba out to somebody that you don't know, that you don't trust, but somebody that you know and love and trust better than anybody else. And here's the thing, too. You don't, you don't have to impress your Abba with the eloquence of your request, Right? I mean, if I was at a rehearsal dinner giving a toast for somebody and my son suddenly decided that he needed another glass of milk, he wouldn't recognize what was going on in the room, right? He would sprint right at me. He would grab my legs and shake me saying, Papa, 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 until I stopped, picked him up and he looked me in the eyes and he said, want milk, Papa, 
Because a kid can do that. A kid's got rights that nobody else in the universe has. And what God's saying is the holy God of the universe who made, who sustains everything has given you that right. There's nothing that you can't ask of him. He reserves the right to say no or not now, but he just wants you to know that you can be near him, that you can trust his good heart. The second implication, the last one, for our obedience. And if you have your Bibles and can continue reading, we'll pick up in verse 6. And I'm just going to read 1 John 3, 6 through 10. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. John makes it really explicit here. If you have really seen what manner of love that the Father has lavished upon us. If you are God's child, it is now your duty to obey God. And I don't know about you, but that word strikes me back because I have this tendency to fall into kind of this good day, bad day syndrome. Stop me when this sounds familiar, okay? So if I wake up early in the morning, have my quiet time, I spend some good time in prayer, I uh, say hello to the mailman, I share the gospel with him, he comes to Christ. I treat my kids really well, take care of all of their needs. I help that old lady across the street. At the end of the day, I start to feel really good about myself. And I start to think, I really am loved by God. And if the next morning my alarm clock doesn't go up, go off in time, and if I wake up late, I don't have a quiet time, I yell at my kids, I curse at the mailman, I try to run over that old lady. When I get home that day, I think, man, I'm just not as sure I mean, I know God died for me, but does God like me? In our lives, the love that we've always gotten from other people, the way that the world works is is conditional, right? We always feel like we have to do something to earn somebody's favor, to earn somebody's love, and to make sure that it's going to stay. And so when it comes to God, we kind of naturally take this paradigm and we apply it to him, and it makes us pretty anxious, If we fail to fulfill our duties, maybe, just maybe, God's love will leave or he'll be more displeased with us. We're anxious about losing it because, as C.S. Lewis said, we don't understand how radically unconditional it really is. I want you to take a look at something for a minute. I think I've got it up here on the screen, hopefully. Yes. This is a a drawing that my daughter gave me. Um, You guys know what this is? So... I asked a couple of people in our office this afternoon what it was, and I got the Kool-Aid man, I got a cartoon character, uh, a bowling ball with a smiley face on it. It's, it's scribbles, right? Um, I could have told you that it was a puppy or the Monstars from Space Jam, and you would have said, oh yeah, I definitely see that. Do you think that as my daughter handed that to me, I looked at her and said, you understand this is terrible, right? No one on God's green earth has any idea what you just drew. 
every single kid on this block is a better artist than you. You're an embarrassment. Don't show me another drawing until you figured out how to do this. No, I bent down to her and I said, hey, can you tell me about this? She says, you and me, Papa. Oh, there it goes. And this drawing, it's never going to hang up in a museum, but it's priceless to me. Because in the moment that she handed it to me, she is beaming with pride, and I just melted because it was a gift from my daughter to her papa meant to make me happy. God does not despise the love, the stained love. I'll get there. God does not despise the stained love gifts of his children fumbling towards obedience. He rejoices in them. He rejoices in every step taken forward. And we don't have to hide our sin and pretend like we have it all together because God already knows and he loves us as we are, not as we pretend to be. He delights in us as a father delights in his children. And we obey now, not to be accepted by God, but because we already are accepted by God. We obey because God loves us, not in order to get him to love us. And yet obedience to the law of God is absolutely necessary, but not for the reasons that we would naturally think. When John says in 1 John 2.29, he is righteous and everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him, he's simply saying that when we obey we're starting to look more like our father. We're starting to bear a resemblance to our brother, that our likeness to them is proof of our relationship, that the family traits are starting to shine through. And when he says this in verse 2 of chapter 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is that we get what Moses and Isaiah never could have imagined, that Jesus is going to come back and his holiness is going to burn up everything impure and make all things new. And we will behold him and know him even as we are known. And he will wipe away every tear from our eye. Don't you long for that day when we won't know in part, but we'll know in whole, don't you need to hear that even if you act the prodigal, God's never going to stop acting the part of the prodigal's father? He's never going to leave you as an orphan because you bear his name. You bear your father's likeness, and your father has set his affections forever on you by the perfect work of Christ on the cross. For this reason, C.S. Lewis wrote this. It ought to be hard for us to get past the Our Father in our prayers without falling back in awe at the incredible miracle which he has wrought in making us his sons and daughters. I want to close this by all of us reciting the Lord's Prayer together, just with the weightiness of what it means for God to be your Abba Father together. Say this together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.